Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to Bubble Trouble, conversations between The Economist and author Will Page, that's myself, and the independent analyst Richard Kramer, where we lay out some inconvenient truths about how the financial markets really work. Today, with bubble trouble speculation in the markets rife right now, we're going to flip it and leave the economics department and go and look at culture instead, the culture of the workplace and how that might help navigate the current turbulence. More in a moment. Richard, welcome back to Bubble Trouble, just me and you this episode. As long as you don't call me King K, I'm happy. Okay, the Duke of K. Well, this time we just wanted to do what I think all economists should do, which is ditch their discipline and look at culture and psychology instead. And to kick this off, just a recollection from my first month at Spotify, way back when we didn't have an HR department. We had cultural and diversity training, which was to teach everybody around the world at Spotify how to be more Swedish. Now, as an American and as a New Yorker, I want you to think about this for a second. Under Swedish culture, the way it was taught to me, if you have a meeting between three people, me, you, Richard, our producer, Eric, and let's say me and Eric get our way and you're screwed over, you're supposed to have a second meeting to keep Richard on board. (laughs) Can you imagine introducing that type of culture to that of Wall Street, where last one out the barrel gets it? Just a very consensus-driven culture in Sweden versus a very capitalistic structure in America. And it's those observations I want to tee out here on this podcast. So we've called this podcast Culture Eats Strategy for Breakfast. It is closer to dinner time here in the UK. But let's start off with a good read. A read that you've told me about for months, if not years now, The Seven Cultures of Capitalism. There's a lot of cultures in the world. Tell me about this book by John Trompenauer, The Seven Cultures of Capitalism. How did you come across it? Why is it seven? And why does it still resonate? So, Fons Trompenaars was a Dutch business professor who had the idea to ask similar survey questions across a number of countries. And he asked them to managers in Japan, the US, Germany, France, the Netherlands, Singapore, etc. Questions like, if your boss asks you to help out on the weekend to clear out his garage, would you do it? Or one of your senior very senior leadership team has been very poorly performing for a long time. Would you fire him, move him into a different job, or reassign him to the HR department? And what he learned from looking across all these different cultures was some very distinct differences in how people dealt with hierarchy, personal relationships, responsibility, 
and all of those sort of softer aspects of the workplace. And there were naturally some real stereotypes that came out from it, but also it was a fascinating approach to how differently different cultures looked at capitalism and looked at the, the manner of working in large organizations. Now, since that book was written in the 90s, uh, certainly it's been become much more common to work in smaller organizations. The, the number of SMEs and small, medium-sized enterprises in the economy has risen dramatically. Certainly one of the things we saw in the pandemic was alongside the great resignation, many people setting themselves up as sole proprietors of their own businesses. Our producer, Eric, is running his own small business. He previously worked for a large organization. Mm -hmm. uh, Will, I think right now you left Spotify and you're now, as an independent consultant, you're doing a lot of different things. So it was just a great insight at the time in just how differently companies could behave or people could behave in companies in different markets. Now, I came across it because I was working at the time for a Canadian telecoms company that had just made a major acquisition in the UK and then one in France. So here was a North American company that needed to learn to get yeah. along with managers in the UK and managers in France and get them all effectively pulling in the same direction. And as you can imagine, that one acquisition or other didn't go very well. And some of that really you could put down to culture. And we have to remind ourselves, as I mentioned on Brookmasters last week, when George W. Bush said the French don't have a word for entrepreneur, there is perceived cultural differences, as well as some dumb things you can say when the US president. But let's come back to this for a second, because one of the mantras I pull out in my book is what matters most is being measured least. And when Wall Street analysts are you know, studying companies, they're studying metrics you can measure, the profit and loss, the cash flow, the balance sheet. It's harder to measure culture, right? So one of the things I really sought to do as an analyst is to understand the cultures of companies as if I was an ethnographer or a cultural anthropologist. So when I first became a financial analyst and I was covering companies like Nokia and Ericsson, I read a book called The Unknown Soldier by Gustav Linna. Now, it's the second sold book in Finland. It's a national treasure. By the way, the first most sold book is the Bible, so it tells you how popular it was. And it is the story of the Finns repelling the Russians in the Second World War with hunting rifles in the middle of the Finnish winter. It's a story of resolve and, and determination that's really central to the Finnish character and also tells you how a country that repaid its war debt in cash and bankrupted itself and went through a terrible financial crisis in the early 90s was able to generate business like Nokia, which for a long time, for over a decade, was the global leader in providing mobile phones to the world. And it really helped me understand that I needed to situate the companies, not just in the profit and loss numbers that you said we can all see, but how they operate and, and think and what the cultures of the companies told you about their long-term strategies and approaches to different business problems. I'm not asking you to blow your own trumpet here, but did you feel like the one-eyed man in the kingdom of the blind, analyzing companies with this type of cultural enrichment as opposed to just a straight-up balance sheet and profit and loss account analysis? Well, I think what it helped me see was the way in which companies would either behave in the short or the long term. 
And I think it's a bit of a cliche to talk about American companies and say that they're very short-termist and focused on on hitting numbers for the stock market and making as much money as they can, profit maximizing, so to speak, because there's certainly a lot of U.S. companies that have long-term visions. But there are also a lot of European companies that have very important stakeholders, which might not have the same financial incentives that some of the other investors uh, sitting alongside them at the boards would be. And you think about German companies, for example, they have something called co-determination where half the members of the board are employer representatives. So they have a very strong uh, influence of the employee base as stakeholders at the table. Whereas I think a lot of US companies have done everything they can to avoid uh, unionization and silence that voice of the worker. Now, it's evening time. I'm going to get ready for my evening meal. But you want to talk about, about breakfast. You want to talk about culture eat strategy for breakfast. That's the name of our podcast. Sounds a bit clickbaity. Unpack this one for us, please. Sure. I, that was a phrase from uh, management consulting guru Peter Drucker. And for me... A legend. A, a legend. A legend. But for me, it really means that culture is sort of lasting. It's enduring. Inside companies, it takes years to build up. And it's expressed in behaviors that happen every day. And it reflects national tendencies. It reflects the environment. There's this right or wrongs type of, of Southern European companies of having this manana culture. Well, it's warm. It's beautiful weather outside. They'll get around to doing something tomorrow. Strategy, however, has to be fluid. It has to be dynamic. It has to be constantly reacting to changes in the market environment. And while you can have long-term strategic goals, you have to constantly revisit those. Whereas company cultures, no one talks about revisiting them unless they go terribly wrong because of some sexual harassment scandals or bullying or something, some other sort of malfeasance. So you don't just sort of decide to change your culture, uh, but you can really frequently decide to change your strategy. Is there a company you want to pull out from under your sleeve there, an example of a company our listeners are familiar with where culture has eaten their strategy for breakfast in recent times? Will, I'll throw it back to you because I'm going to raise a company name that I know you hold in high regard and you've read the books and looked at in detail, which is Netflix. How would you describe the Netflix company culture and what they say in their employment contracts? Well, there is a, if you're ever interviewed for Netflix, there's a quite a detailed deck or memo that you have to digest in full again and again to understand how this company works. Now, I could bore you senseless going through that deck, but rather than that, what I'll do is I'll read you the first sentence of a Netflix employment contract, which says, adequate performance can expect a generous severance package. Making it quite clear that you're here to perform, and if you fail to meet those performance targets, we will look after you as you, we show you the door. And that's a very interesting culture because, you know, if, if friends say to me, hey, I just got a job at Netflix, I'm like, congratulations. Speak to me in six months' time and we'll see if you still have that job because the level of churn is so rife. And that's a very interesting culture, which arguably has bred a success story. You know, there's a wobble in the market just now, okay, but, you know, where it's come from and where it's going you have to wonder about whether that culture has contributed to it. And I think that flows back to the work from home, work from office ethic as well. I think it'll be very interesting to see those companies like Netflix, which want to get you back in the office as soon as possible, mm. whether they 
jam the creative juices way faster than those who are still going to stick on Zoom calls. Mm. I think we have almost like an A-B experiment at scale happening around us right yep. now. It's exciting from that perspective. And and let me throw one back to you and talking about hiring and firing in the context of culture. In your experience, as you saw it at Spotify and as you think of it at companies like Netflix, how would you characterize that hiring and firing that happens all the time in these big companies, but may work very differently depending on the culture of the company? Well, the jockey is only as good as the horse in a sense that you're only as good as the labor laws allow you to be. The way that you operate a company in California is going to be different from the way you operate in Texas. And there's a huge migration now from tech in California moving to Texas, as Daryl Fairweather discussed at length in our, our earlier podcast. But the one example I think which is interesting, and it's a very local one, but it's just the fact that the city of London has become the sixth biggest borough of Paris. And in Kentish Town, where I live, the biggest. We have a school in Kentish Town which takes 1,800 Parisian kids. They're all middle-class families, lawyers, bankers, IT consultants. And I think the reason why they're in London and they're not there, and if you think about countries competing for human capital, is because you can't fire in France. The labour laws don't allow you to fire, which means you can't hire. Now, long story short, the Thatcher Revolution in Britain made it very easy to fire, but also very easy to hire. So if you're ambitious in Paris or France, and if you want to get ahead, you might want to get yourself to London because of that cultural distinction. In Europe, the European model, hard to fire, hard to hire. The Anglo-American model, very easy to fire, very easy to hire. And, you know, standalone examples, you might say, I prefer labor protectionism. But when you compare one against the other, there's been barely any net job creation in France over the past 20 years. Here in the UK, it's been growing at a rate of knots. And that, that, for me, is an interesting takeaway when you compare cultures and countries, never mind when we get into your area of speciality, Richard, cultures within companies. And just to wrap up this first section of our Bubble Trouble podcast, something that resonates with Daryl on that podcast, which was in Europe, you get asked, where are you from? It's assumed that your culture and everything about you is determined in a hyper-local way by the neighborhood, then the, the region, then the country you grew up in. Whereas in the U.S., people routinely move around all the time, and the question you get asked is, what do you do? Which, of course, is in many respects a shorthand for how much money do you make? Also, <laughs> it's assumed that you're not determined by your region, your city, your neighborhood, as much as you are by your occupation. And I'm also thinking of that wonderful point in our discussion with Daryl. We should get her back on the podcast, Richard. She was brilliant, but just you know, with great inflation culture in America, perhaps the next opening question in America is, what are you the vice president of? <laughs> yeah. With that notion of having clear and stark differences between Europe and the US and not even getting into the rest of the world, let's wrap up this first half of this Bubble Trouble podcast about culture, eating strategy for breakfast, and move on to the next section where I'm gonna grill Will on some of the economics around culture and strategy. Welcome back to the second half of Bubble Trouble, talking about how culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I'm here with Will Page, talking through this issue that doesn't get raised often enough, I think we'd both agree, 
it's pretty easy to look at those hard metrics, the numbers that come out in quarterly earnings, the financials that everyone breathlessly talks about on CNBC, and miss out the cultures of companies. And Will, I'd like you to pick up on some stuff from your book, Tarzan Economics, where you talk about builders and farmers. And there's obviously two very different cultures there. One that's piling things up and putting things together, and the other that has to tend to those crops every day, every year, and keep going back to the same well, not moving on to the next house or next project. Can you talk us through how those two different cultures of builders and farmers matter and how they get expressed in companies? That term came from a conversation with Spotify's earliest investor. And I just dropped it in a meeting over coffee and cigarettes, not thinking much about it. But he just said to me, you guys are coming up for your IPO. What's happening in that madhouse? And I, I simply said, it seems to me the builders are leaving and the farmers are coming in. That is, all the people who have that entrepreneurial spirit who design a plane whilst it's in flight, they're jumping off ship now. They're going right back to the bottom to start new companies. Whereas the people coming into the company are more operationally driven. They prefer the knowledge and the security of knowing how a plane needs to land as opposed to designing it when it's in flight. And they're the farmers. They're coming in to do all the compliance and the career development frameworks. And they're taking over the company. And I just passed it into a conversation. And three months later, he told me that expression had really caught, caught a fuse in Silicon Valley. And I was like, what expression? Builders and farmers. What's so special about that term? And he said to me, you've beautifully captured where you belong in the lifespan of a tech company. This is where, for me, it gets really interesting because you don't belong forever. And it's not just a tech point for our listeners. This is so persuasive across the workplace, which is you constantly see people frustrated in their jobs, not because the job is wrong, it's because they're in the wrong position in that job, they're in the wrong period of the life cycle of that job. So... I took it to a very famous organizational psychologist, Adrian Furnham, somebody who we'll have on the podcast in the next couple of months as well. Look out for that. And we thrashed it out. And you have things like the Myers-Briggs analysis, which academics are very dubious of. You have the, the Hogan assessment. I want to build my own taxonomy, which allows you to identify who you are in tech. Are you a builder or are you a farmer? And if you're a builder and you're agitated, get out. Get back to the bottom and start a startup. If you're a farmer and you feel insecure, get out and get into a company where there's much more security and stability. But don't mix the roles up. What creates a lot of problems in the workplace is people being in the wrong jobs. But Will, wouldn't you say that companies need both? They need someone who's going to provide the food that the farmers are able to, to till out of the ground every year uh, with regularity. And they need people who are in product development that think about all the DIY they can do in their own homes to make them happier places to live. Don't you need both types inside a company? Is that too simple of a dichotomy? Well, I cue this one because I'm about to cite some fantastic work that you and your colleagues at Arate Research did for the book here. But let me first say that if you do believe you need both, quite often the way you do it does more harm than good. I mean, how many companies have you seen, Richard, where you have a, a digital disruption department, which is nothing short of a cul-de-sac to put the time wasters that you can't fire to have a little pet project that everyone ignores? I mean, that's common in businesses. That's not digital disruption. That's like behaving like an ostrich. That's not dealing with the problem that's in front of you. 
But yeah, you, you, I guess for a lot of companies, if you think about Microsoft buying a huge gaming company, you know, is that a farmer buying a builder? Discuss. You know, you think about acquisition strategy, is that trying to buy in the entrepreneurial spirit that you can't grow organically? But the example you give in the book is Uber, a company which is not short of controversy, but your team did this beautiful chart, which has been picked up by numerous policymakers, I have to say, very senior policymakers, which showed how Uber makes money when you get a lift home, but loses money when they deliver you a meal. And the way I took that observation was the farmers are running the car lift business, but the builders, the entrepreneurs, the disruptors are burning cash running the Uber Eats business. So you can see in the accounts where you have your builders and where you have your farmers as well. So I think it's a good example of trying to sort of straddle both plates. There's a bunch of different strands I could pick up on. And one thing I will say is that when we look at companies, oftentimes there's one business, which is the cash cow, which is generating all the profits, and they simply can't disrupt it. They can't throw it over the side of the, the boat. They need to keep that business going, even if they realize it's eventually going into a dead end or that plane is going to fly into the side of the mountain. Now, HR departments inside companies, I... I tend to get a bad rap. I don't know how many of them create titles inside their companies that say serial entrepreneur or just a, a right pain in the ass, someone who comes along and expresses contrary opinions <laughs> in meetings. But, you know, how do companies make sure that they still capture the enthusiasm and the drive of those builders that you need to constantly make your products better while not denying the absolute necessity of having the farmers without which we wouldn't have food on our tables. Well, we mentioned the word, the French word entrepreneur in part one. I have to mention it again. I, I do really believe that what makes America such a fascinating entrepreneurial case study is when an American says, yeah, I did this startup and it crashed and burned, their American colleagues will say, great, what are you doing next? Here in Europe, when you say, I tried this startup and I ran out of cash and burned out, oh, I'm really sorry to hear that. What, what went wrong? It's almost like failure, and I'm going to use the term American dream in front of an American, please don't reach for the bucket here, but the American dream almost celebrates failure. And that's something which I think companies in Europe struggle with, which is just get back up and running and try something new. Travis Kalanick tried many things before he tried Uber, and he's trying many things now. He's a serial entrepreneur, and I think that's something that you just can't teach in business school. I think it comes from somewhere far deeper. Yeah, and I would say, from my perspective, that is a very outdated view, because I think this veneration of the vanquisher that we talked about in previous podcasts, this, this putting the entrepreneur on a pedestal, the fact that more young people will know who Elon Musk is than Tim Cook necessarily, because one of them wow, is a, a thought. <laughs> one say is is a disruptor and uh, a builder, a builder, and makes a lot of controversial statements all the time, or smokes pot on Joe Rogan's podcast. And the other is going to do whatever he can to deflect that controversy because he happens to be running a company that generates. $300 billion of sales, and obviously he doesn't want to jeopardize that. A wonderful farmer, but definitely a farmer. Brilliant farmer, but a very clear farmer. <laughs> so celebration of the entrepreneur, and if it was Elon Musk this last year, it was Mark Zuckerberg five years ago and Steve Jobs 10 years ago, 
that celebration of the entrepreneur has enabled or has given permission to all those young people to try and fail. And I think the the prevalence or rise of, of venture capital, of angel investing, a function of all this capital sloshing around the system has also given permission or enabled young people to try and fail in places where that would have been frowned upon a decade ago. So I think that view of the European as as being so risk averse and cautious as to not want to try uh, ideas out in the market is very outmoded. Uh, I want to push back there a little. I think you're right, but I, I want to twist it a little bit because I think that the American business model, low tax, low regulation, is very conducive. It fosters that entrepreneurial culture. Whether it's nature, nurture we're discussing here, the lay of the land helps it in America. If you have a great idea and you live in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, you are now having a great idea with a potential market of 338 million people. Europe doesn't offer that. Yep. Estonia doesn't offer that. Spain doesn't offer that. If you have a great idea in the province of Valencia in Spain, you register your business for Valencia in Spain. If you want to roll it across Spain, you have to register in each separate province. Mm-hmm. In Catalonia, in Madrid, and again and again and again. Galicia. So you could have the nature of the entrepreneur, but the regulatory conditions, the policy framework in those countries don't help nurture it. I guess that's my point. I think you're right on on the nature, but you're wrong on the nurture. And if I were to put a less benign spin on it, you might say that having effectively zero social safety net in America means that there's perpetually a gun to your head, in some cases, literally in America. They don't, <laughs> Let's you know, go there. if you don't, there's nowhere to fall back on if you're not going to behave like an entrepreneur. So you've got to have a go because there's there's no welfare system that'll look after you for a year while you're trying to bootstrap your startup. You know, there, there's not the the support structures in place for people who might take a bit longer to get that entrepreneurial idea off the ground. Okay, let's take this to the bridge with our favorite closing point of getting Richard Kramer smoking something that's legitimate and allowed. We've seen the market take a wobble in the past couple of weeks. For certain tech stocks, quite a big wobble. And we've been discussing how culture can eat strategy for breakfast. So let's try and join the two up here at the hip, which is, can you give us a smoke signal on a positive note about signs of culture which suggest the captain of that ship, the CEO of that company, can steer a course through this current turbulence that we're seeing right now? And can you also flip it and give us the warning sign, the uh-oh, which is cultural signals which suggest you should just abandon ship and offload that stock right away? Give us a couple of companies as examples if it's possible, but what are we looking for in terms of steering through the turbulence? And what are we looking for when we think you ain't going to make it, you better jump ship right now? Well, certainly a few of the things that we track closely in our role as analysts is, for example, executive turnover. It's extremely hard to run companies when your management team is a revolving door, because not only do you have to replace all the experience that leaves when someone talented walks out the door, but it takes you some months with a headhunter to come up with a short list of candidates. If you hire those candidates and find them to be just as good as the person they replaced, they will come in and say, 
let's look at what that last person did for three to six months. And then they'll come in and say, let's do something completely different. So before you know it, when you've lost a talented senior executive, it's not simply a matter of next man up. If you want to replace that person, it'll often set you back six or nine or 12 months to the plans that you had in place. And so one thing I would look for is stable management teams with deep benches of talent. So when you see one executive who might depart for whatever reason, maybe they want to join a startup or maybe they, they had some other issues in their personal life, that there is someone just as competent and well-respected in the organization that steps into their shoes, or if they have to bring in someone from the outside, it's someone who can hit the ground running. Because too often I've seen companies falter in that transition of leadership one or two or three layers below the CEO rank, because we all know most companies are run by the middle management. So it reminds me of a, a great adage in business, which is in the public sector, they have an expression which goes, I meet, therefore I am, because all you do in the public sector is have meetings. Whereas in the private sector, the adage goes, I reorg, therefore I am, because all you do is reorg your company. And I guess too many reorgs is bad for business. Fair comment? Absolutely. And uh, another smoke signal we look out for is the way in which, as we've talked about in previous podcasts on adjusted earnings, companies give themselves excuses or free passes or not. What you really want to see in a management team is someone who owns up to their mistakes and appreciates when capital allocation decisions were misguided and they cut and run. So rather than sticking after something that they weren't doing very well, they say, you know what, let's sell this business or shut it down. Rather than pursuing a business where they're the number five or six player in the market, they retreat. And that's a good sign of discipline inside companies. And too often you have companies that if a competitor of theirs is doing something, they'll feel compelled to try to do it too. Even if it may not be something that's really within their scope of expertise. So I think that there's something to say, sticking to your knitting is, <laughs> is wise. And one thing to watch out for is companies that make glib comments about how they can address another market. Remember that total addressable market comment? I want, I want a slice of that pie. I want I will, a slice. Uh, that's I, a big I, pie I, chart. I'm going to take a slice of it and the pie will not respond. Exactly. That's, that's the weird bit. <laughs> and, and so if you look at the best companies in the world, the ones that come up on these fortune, most admired, best managed companies, they will take very deliberate decisions to enter into a field. And they will typically do something that's if it's not directly in their wheelhouse, it's the building next door. So they're not going to fly off into a completely new venture in which they have no business. Now, you look at the number of companies that have been rumored to launch themselves into the car market because electric or autonomous vehicles are going to be the next big thing. And you look at the number of companies that have failed there or have struggled to make returns in the autos market. And it tells you, hey, it's a little bit more than just putting out a clever press release. 
Richard, before we wrap it up, I, I, this conversation has been enlightening for me. I love getting away from economics and getting into culture and psychology. It's, it's where economics needs to find itself these days. Could you maybe just offer a quick comment on blame culture? I mean, when you look at a company where things have gone wrong and there's a blame culture, what does that make you as an experienced analyst think? I'm interested in this idea of blame. Does that make the job better or does that make the job worse? One book that I think is required reading for any student at any age oh, is... I'm on Amazon right now. I'm on Amazon right now. Now, hang on. <laughs> so one required reading book for students of any age is the book around the growth mindset, which is really about learning from your mistakes. The opposite of the growth mindset is the blame culture. It's someone else's fault. The teacher was bad. The test was too hard. My pencil broke. There's all these excuses why I didn't do well on my exam. Well, a student with a growth mindset will say, let's look at all the problems I got wrong and try to figure out what mistakes I made and what I can do to correct them the next time. So I think companies that succumb to that blame culture aren't going to go very far because they're not willing to take a hard look in the mirror and say, well, that didn't work out. What are we going to do about it next time? What are we learning from the experience? And you hear companies talk about learnings from experiences. It's very hard in a large organization to codify those learnings, to capture them in True. some sort of knowledge management framework. It's typically captured in the scars and bitter experiences of the management team that figured, hey, that didn't work out so well. Let's not try it again. So I would say the blame culture is anathema to that growth mindset. And I think the really good companies are willing to look at their failures and try to draw lessons, not to have them be repeated again and again and again. Loving it. This has been a great podcast. I am grateful for your contribution, Richard. This is something I think we should be going more and more into. The more markets wobble, the more we should be discussing culture, the less we should be discussing profit and loss. And then just to wrap it up, it does bring back a memory from a, a long time ago when I worked in government and I was at the Treasury, the UK Treasury, and I learned a story about the Chancellor of the Exchequer, which is whenever a Chancellor of the Exchequer enters government, he is presented with a drawer with three envelopes. And you're told that when things go wrong, you should open the first envelope. Uh, let's say inflation is up, unemployment is up, growth is down. You open the first envelope and it says, blame your predecessor. <laughs> and then if inflation keeps on getting worse, as it is today, if unemployment really gets bad, which it beginning is <laughs> to today, and when growth really slows, which is actually doing right now, you open the second envelope. And that says, blame your civil servants. And if things get really bad and you have stagflation, the economy's contracting, inflation's out of control, everybody's asking to clean your window because nobody's got jobs, you open your third envelope and it says, wish the new chancellor good luck. That's a really nice way of capturing blame culture. So that's been it. That's been a great episode of Bubble Trouble. I've really enjoyed this conversation. You've been with myself, Will Page, and the independent analyst, Richard Kramer, and we're going to see you next time. If you're new to Bubble Trouble, we hope you'll follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Bubble Trouble is produced by Eric Newsom, Jesse Baker, and Julia Natt at Magnificent Noise. You can learn more at bubbletroublepodcast.com. Will Page and I will see you next time. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.